Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessings you've given us this week, and we thank you that it's Sabbath, and that we can catch our breath and, and pause to think about you and your ways. I want to thank you for Pastor's sermon this morning, and I pray that you will pour your spirit out on him. And on this service, next service, that minds will be opened and they will understand and hear what he's really saying. Pray that um, you will uncloud and unblock uh, our minds and our eyes that we might actually see you as you really are. And I want to uplift the members of this class who are going for interviews uh, this next week. We pray that you will give them courage and peace and confidence in you and your ability to see them through and that they will be a, have a sense of your presence and that they will be given just the words they need to say to the committee when they meet. I pray that uh, you will guide the committee and the people who interview, that you will be there to impress upon their minds uh, that these candidates are worthy of doing you service in the field that Jesus spent so much time in, the field of healing. We ask that you'll be with us today as we study your word. May your spirit guide us and direct us. May we understand and grapple with the language. Once again, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to reiterate, and, and I'm probably doing this a lot, but I want to reiterate if I can find the statements, the statement Ellen White makes about language, because so much of what we're struggling with in these statements is language. The Bible was not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men, Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. I just want to remind you of that as we move on. Um, Because it's so easy to think of that language is what we've always understood it to mean. So as we... Let's try to complete today. I don't know if we'll get through or not. Um, does anybody remember where we left off? It's been two weeks, so uh, maybe if I look at the notes. I don't think we did 30. I think we did 28 and 29. Okay. (laughs) Okay, then let's start with number 30. Okay. I will read uh, the statement and then we will move to the thoughts on mediation and intercession statements. He holds before the Father this censer of his own merits in which there is no taint of earthly corruption. He gathers into this censer the prayers the praise, the confessions of his people. And with these he puts his own spotless righteousness, then perfumed with the merits of Christ's propitiation, the incense comes up before God holy and entirely acceptable. Then gracious answers are returned. The fragrance of this righteousness ascends like a cloud around the mercy seat. 
Yeah, let's turn to thoughts. Number 30. And Tara, why don't you read? Since we have examined most of the terms in the statement already, the one phrase that needs clarity is, perfumed with the merits of Christ's propitiation. As we showed at the beginning of spring quarter, uh, Ellen White used the term propitiation much the same way the Bible does. In its earliest usage, Greek, it did not mean appeasement. Indeed, in 1 John, it literally means means or place of atonement. One could just as easily translate this phrase, perfumed with the value of Christ's atonement. But the passage taken as a whole seems to imply that Christ must do something with our prayers in order to make them acceptable to God. Why would this be? Would a loving parent say this to his or her three-year-old child who comes asking for a popsicle? Before I can answer your request, I need your older brother to mingle your request with the incense of the merits of his righteousness. Does this statement imply that God is reluctant to hear and answer our prayers and cannot do so unless Jesus pleads and appeases his anger against us? Such a view would negate Jesus' own words. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. On that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Ellen White uses this in The Great Controversy to show that Jesus does not need to beg his Father to love and forgive us. So why is this language used, and what does it mean? To answer these questions, we need to step back and consider this statement in light of the great controversy. The vast number of intelligent, loyal beings who are involved in the process of deciding our cases and the nature of that, of, the nature of that controversy over God's character. Suppose the heavenly cor- court heard one of David's prayers for vengeance on his enemies. God smiles and says, certainly, I'll be happy to whack his enemies. The angels look at one another and say, oh God, oh, so God is vengeful and reluctant to forgive. Of course, this is a bit of a caricature of the problem, but it serves to make the point that our prayers are far from representing God's character. If God alone heard and answered, then with no help from the angels, perhaps this would not be an issue. But God runs an open form in heaven, which is not, in which nothing is secret regarding us and this planet. How is God to answer our prayers so that he is not misrepresented in the process? Uh, This is why I believe that it is necessary for Jesus to edit our prayers, to thwart Satan's attempts to destroy our reputations and to clarify the truth about the Father. Jesus edits our prayers based on his own experience here on earth and his flawless revelation of of the Father. Similarly, when defending our characters, he takes his own, like an artist would wood a sculpture, and intertwines his perfect model throughout our imperfect representations showing how we are headed the same direction and clarifying our intent and showing how, given a perfect environment, as well as having back the original minds of Adam and Eve, we would reflect his image. He offsets Satan's claims to us by showing that we believe and accept his death for us, which showed Satan to be the adversary and murderer that he is, and that we are, therefore, covered by his blood, which reveals the truth about sin and its results and Christ's own lamb-like victory over evil and force. This is how we are clothed with his righteousness, how he mingles our prayers with its incense, and how he can present us faultless before the throne of God. Any questions or observations before we move on? 
is that like an in or your conclusion like an interpretation of the spirit interpreting with groans that can't be uttered verse I think it's in Hebrews mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. are there other yeah. verses that that shape that conclusion you know that same chapter I think that's uh, Romans chapter 8 is it not I don't know <laughs> um, let me let me get Romans chapter 8 here we go uh, yeah turn to chapter 8 and I want you to focus first of all one for, starting with verse 14 All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. And then if you jump down to verse 22, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, this isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. In the same way, the spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressible groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the Spirit thinks because he pleads for the saints consistent with God's will. So he prays for us in the way we would pray if we could see things the way we are going to see them ultimately. Then we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know this because God knew them in advance, and he decided in advance that they would be conformed to the image of his Son. That way his son would be the first of many brothers and sisters. Those whom God decided in advance would be conformed to his son. He also called those whom he called. He also made righteous. Those whom he made righteous, he also glorified. So what are we going to to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them, who is going to convict them. It is Christ Jesus who died, even more, who was raised, and is also at God's right side. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will uh, be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. But in all things, these, these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ, Jesus our Lord, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or anything that is created. You know what? He doesn't say God's wrath in there. Not God's wrath. No, because God is already on our side. That's what he's trying to make very, very clear here. So this, this, this spirit praying for us, Jesus pleading for us, is not for God. It is for the universe. It's because God runs an open court, and He doesn't do anything in a secret. Uh, everything is everything is out there for everybody to see, and and anyone who has a question can raise it. Is that I don't know? Did I, that help? Any other questions or comments before we move on? Yeah. I really like resonated with what you said about. Um, he takes us like as if the world was perfect and he clarifies our intentions that way 
because I feel like a, a barrier to belief for a lot of people is just the state of our world. And I think genetics and life experiences have a lot to factor in on how we can even begin to perceive God. And I think that hinders a lot of people. And so, I, so I really like that. If It's like he clears, clears all that aside and says, look, if these guys had it as it should be, they would believe in me. And I think that really is important. Okay, why don't we go to number... Number 31, 31 on the statements, just the statements. As you draw near the cross of Calvary, you see love that is without parallel. As by faith you grasp the meaning of the sacrifice made on that cross, you see yourself a sinner, condemned by a broken law. This is repentance. As you come with a humble heart, you find pardon. For Jesus stands before the Father, continually offering a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is the minister of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. The typical offerings of a Jewish tabernacle no longer possesses any virtue. A daily and yearly atonement is no longer necessary. But because of the continual commission of sin, the atoning sacrifice of a heavenly mediator is essential. Jesus, our great high priest, officiates for us in the presence of God offering in our behalf his shed blood. Why don't we go to 31 and the other... The words, condemned by a broken law, can be interpreted legally or in harmony with all that she writes elsewhere about the law being the law of love and a transcript of God's character. It can be interpreted descriptively. In light of her statements about Christ bearing our sins and suffering their guilt and woe and dying as a result of their weight, And in light of what she says about how sinners will die at the end, the broken law condemns the same way natural law condemns. There is no way to escape the clutches of death due to defying the descriptive law of love that means for the universe without divine rescue. The biggest puzzle, though, in this statement is her portrayal of Jesus standing before the Father, continually offering a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He offers on our behalf, she adds, his shed blood. How are we to read this? If we, like the unbelieving Jews, take it literally, just as they did Jesus' injunction to eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have a problem, because then Jesus' death did not accomplish what it was intended to do. And Jesus had to die over and over again because we continually sin. That's very, by the way, very Roman Catholic in its view. From a legal perspective, it is therefore problematic. From a descriptive perspective, it makes sense. If Jesus died from the weight of the world's sins, including our own, then every time we sin, he feels the agony he has ever felt, of which the cross was only a taste. And, and that I'm referring there to the statement, that Ellen White makes, that what we see in the cross of Christ is just a a glimpse of the emotional agony that sin has ever brought the heart of God. That we're seeing God's heart, basically, and it's it's the most acute suffering over all the things that we do to whack its kids. You know, you think of all the things we do to hurt people on this planet, uh, and God sees that all, and he suffers with each each person. So here's that statement. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with its manifestation in humanity. 
The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Our world is a vast laser house, a scene of misery that dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Did we realize that as it is, the burden would be too terrible, yet God feels it all. In order to destroy sin and its results, he gave his best beloved, and he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring this scene of misery to an end. So in one sense, Jesus is ever going through the agonies of Gethsemane, agonies that encapsulated briefly while he was on earth, his eternal suffering because of sin. In another sense, though, what Jesus offers is what his sacrifice eternally accomplished. It established the truth about God's character, broke the strongholds of Satan's lies about him, revealed the nature and consequences of sin for what it is, thus abolishing Satan's original claim, you shall, you shall not surely die. His death, therefore, established God's law as, as eternal because it was built on intrinsic, descriptive principles that could never be changed. Thus, by pointing constantly to his establishment of the truth, Jesus offers his sacrifice as forever setting the charges against God Satan raised. This is the basis on which he can save us. Any questions or comments? So what I'm suggesting, this, is, this isn't legal language here, this is real. Um, and I, I shouldn't use the word real in contrast to legal because a lot of people think the legal language is real. Um, but legal, anything legal is a humanly devised, contrived system to try, it's, it's like bailing wire that holds us together in our relationships because we lack love and trust. Uh, so what I'm suggesting is this language is depicting something so much bigger that is really real, that God really feels every sin, every suffering that is on this planet. And he, he feels it as his own. Any questions, comments, observations? I know that's a lot to think about. <laughs> well, why don't we go then? Yeah, we are almost there. Two more to go. Number 32. Christina, I'll let you read. The Jewish system was symbolical and was to continue until the perfect offering should take the place of the figurative. The mediator in his office and work would greatly exceed in dignity and glory the earthly typical priesthood. The people of God, for Adam's day, down to the time when the Jewish nation became a separate and distinct people from the world, had been instructed in regard to the Redeemer to come, which their sacrificial offerings represented. This Savior was to be a mediator, to stand between the Most Holy and his people. Through this provision, a way was opened whereby the guilty sinner might find access to God through the mediation of another. The sinner could not come in his own person, with his guilt upon him, and with no greater merit than he possessed in himself. Christ alone could open the way by making an offering equal to the demands of the divine law. He was perfect and undefiled by sin. He was without spot or blemish. The extent of the terrible consequences of sin could never have been known, had not the remedy provided been of infinite value. The salvation of fallen man was procured, 
at such an immense cost the angels marveled and could not fully comprehend the divine mystery that the majesty of heaven equal with God should die for the rebellious race these lines are worthy of discussion this savior was to be a mediator to stand between the most high and his people through this provision a way was opened whereby the guilty sinner might find access to God through the mediation of another the sinner could not come in his own person with his guilt upon him and with no greater merit than he possessed himself Christ alone could open the way by making an offering equal to the demands of the divine law why is this true that we could not come in our own person keep in mind that all keep in mind all that Jesus said in the additional statements of Ellen White about Jesus not needing to plead with the Father because the Father himself loves us as you answer. Is she not implying that we cannot be our own Savior? That we cannot find the way to the Father apart from Jesus? It isn't that the Father won't let us come near him unless Jesus placates his anger. Rather, Satan has so obscured our vision that we cannot see the Father as he really is apart from Christ. Neither can we ascend to heaven and plead our our own cases to offset Satan's claims against us. Only Jesus can do that, too. What is that offering that is equal to the demands of the divine law? She seems to answer it in this sentence. The extent of the terrible consequences of sin could never have been known had not the remedy provided been of infinite value. Jesus died in the fullest possible way the final death of sinners and thus met the demands of the divine law in toto. As descriptive law, there is no way around the fact that sin, the breaking of the law of love, leads to death. This is the demand of the law. For example, the law of gravity demands that if I jump off a cliff, I must go down, not up or across, and that I must therefore suffer whatever consequences occur. What is said here is the conclusion we have reached, that only Jesus, as fully God and fully a perfect human being, could demonstrate the truth about nature and consequences of sin. Any other que- any questions or observations about that? I think Jonathan has one. Curious about one of your sentences here. Sure. Um, okay. Satan has so obscured our vision that we cannot see the Father as he really is apart from Christ. What do you mean by that? I mean that our, our, he has distorted our perception of the Father as character so that we believe his lies about him. And only through seeing Jesus as he really is in his life and his death um, can we really see the Father. Because if all we had were the Old Testament, think of what, what our picture of God would probably be like. Wrathful, angry, out to get us, uh, holy, implacable, uh, punitive. It's in Jesus that we can start working on the problems of the Old Testament. Say, wait a minute, this doesn't, our picture of God doesn't, in the Old Testament doesn't line up with Jesus, so what, what's the deal? And we can go back then and revisit the Old Testament and see with new eyes what we missed. So would you say that's why um, the Old Covenant didn't work? Because there's, there was that lack of seeing God for who he truly was? There's no trust in the Old Covenant. And that, and trust can only come as we know God as He really is, because otherwise, I mean, can you trust a God who's punitive and angry and and revengeful and implacable and and all of that? No, you can only trust a God who can war- welcome you with open arms. So is that to say then that like 
the Old Testament people or the, the, the human beings that were around maybe 4,000 years ago or so were, were fundamentally more corrupt than we tend to be today? That God had to accommodate them and their I system? I don't think we're, they're found, found <laughs> fundamentally more corrupt than we are today. There's plenty of violence on our planet. <laughs> uh, we, but what we have tended to do is try to... Uh, whitewash our violence and and make it less violent and and more acceptable more pc um but i i do think that they were at a level of understanding where god can only work so far to bring them to better higher ground and that that we can if we stand back and say at the beginning of the fall and watch god as he tries to each generation bring a little more light there are some generations like during the Middle Ages where people just went way down again. And so God had to start over, as it were, to bring us back up. But I, th- I think that science, I think that uh, the kinds of discoveries we've made in thought and thinking, psychology, all of that has been God's tools. Not that they're perfect tools and not that Satan hasn't used them also, but God has used them to try to better our understanding of him. That's that's the second book of nature, in a sense. Okay, let's uh, do the last one, shall we? Oh, you have okay. Um, so the the need for the um, Israelites to have this legal ling- language so they could understand it um, would this have anything to do with their surrounding polytheistic environment? Their surrounding polytheistic environment was, was in terms of legality, very much like them. Um, in fact, I contend that the legal model was invented by the Babylonians. That's one of the reasons I am eager to get into Babylonia. Uh, Jonathan, read 33. As we acknowledge before God our appreciation of Christ's merits, fragrance is given to our intercessions. Oh, who can value this great mercy and love? As we approach God through this virtue of Christ's merits, we are clothed with his priestly vestments. He places us close to his side, encircling us with his human arm, while with his divine arm he grasps the throne of the infinite. He puts his merits as sweet incense in a censer in their hands in order to encourage their petitions. He promises to bear and answer their supplications. I just, I, the thought struck me, that picture of Jesus holding the sinner with one arm and holding the Father with the other is a picture of, of, the, of a, a negative charge on one hand and a positive charge on the other, and God is going to transfer that positive charge to the sinner. That is, this is the way that the current of love can reach because if all we had was a human savior who grasped a hold of us, we would pull that human savior down. So we need this mediator, this one who can connect to God and connect to us in order to pull that current of divine love directly to us. Does that make any sense? I'm using a different metaphor now, a metaphor of electricity. <laughs> but uh, it, that picture just came to my mind that that maybe that's what's happening. Okay, we'll read the last paragraph. What are his merits? Reread the thoughts on 29 above. 
If the merits of Jesus are his blameless character that revealed the Father and showed us what we through his grace may become if we trust in him, then as we tell God how much we appreciate what Jesus did to reveal him to us, he interweaves the truth that set us free around our petitions and around us so that we are surrounded by his presence, his life, and his truth. And another way of putting it maybe is we live in a very dark world without light. The light meaning truth. And light meaning the truth about God's character of love. We live in a very dark, cold world because we don't have the warmth of God's love. And so Jesus becomes the one who brings God's love to us. And it's all metaphoric. I mean, Jesus isn't literally having one arm around the Father and one arm around us. That's, it's not a literal picture. It's a metaphoric picture to say uh, it took a person who was God to reveal the Father and a person who's human so that we can identify with him, we can feel him, he's approachable in order to connect us back to God. And, and that's the purpose of his media, mediatorial work. The Bible never, particularly in the New Testament, it never says that Jesus died to reconcile the Father to us. It's always Jesus died to reconcile us to the Father. That's always the direction the New Testament takes it. And so that, to me, it's so important that we understand that the Father is just as loving as the Son, just as willing to forgive, just as much on our side as he is. And there is no difference between them. And Jesus isn't begging him to love us. He doesn't need to. I, I, I think along the same lines um, um, that it's really not logical to to look at God the Father in a way that he doesn't love us so much as Jesus because he's the one that sent Jesus himself. So, <laughs> Yeah. Any other questions or comments? I know you need to get to church. So we, uh, next week we will go to the Bible now. And we are going to start with the topic of God's anger. Uh, we may start with the topic of the sermon today, just God destroy. We may do that. I'm, I'm thinking maybe that's more foundational than anger. And if once we clear that up, then we can go to um, God's wrath. So uh, anyway, stay tuned. Father, we thank you that you are the kind of person that, you, that Jesus has portrayed you as. We pray that we may allow him to bring us all the way into your presence to see you as clearly as you made him to be. May we be focused and attentive to hearing your voice through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen.